Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. To say Ethan was the smartest 12-year-old I'd ever met would be an understatement. According to his school records, his first stroke of genius hit him around the time he was in second grade when he multiplied three-digit numbers in his head while the other kids were just learning to add using their fingers. He has always been fascinated by mathematics, particularly probability, which wasn't even covered in the syllabus yet. His teacher immediately requested Ethan's parents to consider him skipping a few grades, maybe even take a few tests to see if he was a genius. The Joneses were against that idea completely. They just thought it would be too much work in their already hectic life. However, the absolute lack of attention of love from Ethan's parents isn't the reason why he is in my office every day at 4 p.m. sharply. Frankly, I don't think that bothers them. He's not all too popular in school either, considering no kids want to be friends with a know-it-all that could predict the outcome of Monopoly with the help of some probability. That's not what we're addressing here either. Ethan has been sent to me because he was the only one present at the crime scene when his 19-year-old babysitter Kristen was brutally murdered by the serial killer who had escaped from a jail a couple weeks ago and was on a killing spree. Well, he wasn't exactly a witness, because while Kristen's head was being badgered with a hammer, Ethan was too busy counting the tiles on the bathroom floor. It was unfortunate, really. But fate would have it that Kristen met the pattern of this rogue killer's previous victims. The Joneses returned home to a bloody corpse in the middle of their living room, and their young boy seated on a chair in the dining hall, playing on his iPad. It was Mrs. Jones that believed her son required a psychologist, given God knows what he might have witnessed that evening. She wanted to ensure he was still normal. My sessions with Ethan haven't really been all that fruitful. I tried to keep the conversation going many times, but all I'd get in return were a few shrugs and maybe a half-hearted yeah now and then. Today, however, I decided to dive right in and talk about that gruesome evening. It was a dark time for the entire town, you know, I spoke. The police didn't see it coming. Nobody did. What were the chances? I did. A voice. A sentence. That was a breakthrough for me. What's that? I had seen the man come to our house and stare every evening for a week. Ethan spoke. Who? I pressed. The bad man who killed Kristen. I would see him from the bedroom window. I knew the police were looking. I saw the news and I knew he was going to do something bad. I also knew he would have done it on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, because that's when mom and dad don't come home for a long time, Ethan continued. The chances were two out of seven. I felt a chill go down my spine. It was peculiar to see a child talk about such an event with not even a hint of remorse. Why? I began. Why didn't you say anything? You could have saved her life. 
Kristen never liked when I spoke about math. She called it weird, Ethan replied. Besides, I wanted to see if I was right. When I was 13, my family was murdered. The killer went from room to room in my home, slaughtering my family in the early hours of a Sunday morning in June of 2001. My father was killed first, neck sliced wide and deep as he drank his first cup of coffee. My sister was next, a pillow over her face as she lay sleeping in her room. The bed and floor were covered in bloody feathers by the time the knife was done turning her head into a crimson ruin. My mother died in the shower, a jagged piece of metal pipe being rammed through the shower curtain and her torso with enough force that she was left pinned to the far tile wall like a butterfly. I was away at band camp that summer and wasn't due to being home for another week. I was mopping up water in the boys' bathroom when I saw my aunt at the door, eyes red-rimmed and voice trembling, as she told me something had happened and I needed to go with her. I knew right away it was something terrible, but as she told me the barest of versions of what happened, that someone had come into our home and murdered my family, I felt myself disconnecting from everything, including her words. The next few days were just a red haze of shock and pain, and my first clear memories are over a month after I'd moved in with my Aunt Judith and her husband Ernie. They were good to me. I struggled with school and friends for years afterward, but they were always patient and kind, never failing to give me second and third chances until I ran out of excuses for punishing them and hating myself. They never found out who did it, or why. My parents weren't wealthy or connected. They didn't have enemies or rivals that I knew of. And while it was always possible that the killings were just random, the precision of it all didn't seem like the work of a deranged spree killer. In high school, I'd spent years cultivating the theory that it was a local serial killer. But that was mainly fueled by depression and bad internet research. I wanted to catch the killer, but even more than that, I wanted to understand why it had happened. Maybe they'd never give an answer, but if I could at least put a face and a name to the person that killed my life, it'd be a start. But that never came. I wound up going to an art school for college, and between work, classes, and all the trappings that come with becoming an adult, my obsession began to fade. I'm ashamed to say it, but there are days now where I don't even think about the family that was taken from me. I work at an animation studio in the restoration department. My job is to repair and restore old or damaged footage for clients. When possible, transfer the restored version to a digital format for both viewing and archival purposes. A lot of people hate that kind of work. It's tedious. And while it makes a lot of money for the company, it's not flashy like working on new digital animations or special effects. But me? I love it. I get to take things that people had once cared about and spend a lot of time on, things that might otherwise rot away or be lost, and I get to heal them, make them new and alive again. Some people just see them as dumb cartoons, but I disagree, and if you'd asked me last week, I'd have said there wasn't a better job in the whole world. The package was sitting on my desk last Thursday, brown paper wrapped around what looked like the shape of a small film reel. 
and tied with a piece of gray string. It was strange, but only a little. While most of the work we did was for companies looking to redistribute old assets they owned or had acquired on disc or streaming, occasionally a private owner with deep pockets would commission us to restore something they'd found in their grandparents' attic or something. It didn't make any difference to me where it came from. It was something new and mysterious, a potential new challenge or the opportunity to see something few had ever seen before, at least not for a very long time. Sitting down, my coffee, I carefully opened the package and pulled out the reel of film. I looked for some kind of note or instructions, but there was none. That was strange. I called up to admin department, but they didn't know what I was talking about at first. When they called back a few minutes later, the woman just said it was apparently a personal package dropped off for me, not anything for a client. There was a disapproving edge to her voice, but I ignored it, thanking her and hanging up before turning back to the film. It looked to be well preserved, no tears or cracks, and spot checking a few frames showed no obvious signs of color shifting or fading. It was just some kind of strange cartoon with an odd figure holding various sinister weapons. I didn't know why, but my heart had begun to beat faster. Normally, I would document and copy each frame before attempting to play an unknown film. It's too easy to miss imperfections that can cause damage when it's run through a projector. But this wasn't a real job, and I'd seen just enough in those few frames that I wanted to watch the whole thing right away. So I locked the door to my office, threaded the film into one of the 35mm projectors in the media room, and watched in horror at what began to play. The cartoon began without any title cards or preamble. It simply showed an animated figure wearing a hooded sweatshirt or jacket entering a house. There was no sound, but the movements of the character mimicked the fluid, exaggerated animations of characters in the 1920s and 30s. Legs like slinkies encased in jello propelled him creepily along as he snuck deeper into someone's house. The figure went to the kitchen first. There he found an unsuspecting man sitting at the kitchen table reading a book while sipping from a cup. The figure crept up behind him, waiting patiently, perhaps gleefully, until the man sat down his coffee. Then in one slow and fluid movement, he grasped the man's forehead and pulled it back while bringing a comically large straight razor across his neck. Cartoon blood sprayed out across the table and the far wall, but the figure and camera were already on the move again. The cartoonishness, the crude nature of the animation, should have made it easier to watch, but it didn't. The killer was still moving with exaggerated sneaking steps, but now his chest was heaving with either exertion or excitement. But as he moved to the back hall, I knew what was coming, but there was nothing I could do to stop it. The figure eased into my sister's bedroom. She was supposed to be going to college in the fall and after that to veterinary school. She was sweet and smart and beautiful, and I loved her so much. And on the film, the girl's body was spasming as the killer stabbed the pillow he'd pressed over her face again and again. When he was done, he moved on to the master bedroom and the bathroom beyond. Blue clouds of steam boiled out from behind the shakily twitching shower curtain as the figure gestured toward the camera 
as though telling the audience to wait a moment or keep quiet so they didn't alert his prey. Partially unzipping his sweatshirt, he produced a long piece of pipe with a sinister edge on the end. In real life, hiding something so large would have been impossible, but in the cartoon logic of the film, I barely registered it before all thought was driven from me, as he drove the pipe through the curtain and into my mother. Drawn lines of blood shot out across the wall and down into the tub, while a small, pale hand twitched pitifully from beyond the edge of the curtain. I was gripping my knees so hard my hands ached, but I couldn't look away. When the screen went blank, I let out a held breath, thinking it was finally over. My mind started racing. Who would have sent it to me? The killer? After all this time? Someone else? Someone playing a sick prank by taking what happened to my family and turning it into a cartoon? Neither seemed to make much sense, but I needed to. The film flared back to life. It was in a darkened room that had been drawn with more care and detail than the scenes that had preceded it. In the center of the frame was a pool of moonlight from a nearby window, and in that glow, a cartoon boy slept a troubled sleep. It was clear from the flowered comforter and the ornate porcelain lamps on the bedside tables that this wasn't a little boy's room. It was a guest room, meant more for decoration than company, and it had been hastily prepared in the face of some unexpected calamity. I recognized that room. It had been my bedroom until I went to college, but it hadn't been decorated like that after that first... after that first night. This was the first night I was with them, the night after my family was killed. I jumped as the hooded figure suddenly appeared from dark at the moon glow's edge. He leaned over the cartoon boy with almost theatrical malevolence, and for a moment I expected him to speak or perhaps even kill that past cartoon version of me. Instead a dark tongue snaked out of the shadows of his hood, trailing up the side of the cartoon boy's face and ruffling his hair. Where the tongue had traveled, there was now a deep red mark left in its wake. The killer raised up, his shoulders shaking silently in what might have been laughter, and then the film went dark. As it did, bright wet pain seared across the side of my face and up into my scalp. Letting out a scream, I ran into the bathroom to wash my face. There must have been something on that film, or some contaminant from somewhere, and I was having a reaction. I needed to wash the area thoroughly and then check in the mirror to see why it was the mark. The mark from the cartoon. It blazed from the side of my face like a birthmark or old burn, but that, that wasn't possible. I didn't have any burns or birthmarks, never had that I knew of. I squirted soap into my hand and feverishly scrubbed at the spot. It didn't hurt anymore, but but I could feel the skin growing raw under my attack. Forcing myself to stop, I rinsed off the soap and put a cold, damp paper towel against the mark. Maybe it was just a rash and would go away. I stumbled back into the other room to find that the screen was still dark, though the reel continued to turn with no signs of running out of film. I was moving to switch off the projector when the connected speakers crackled to life. 
A single distorted phrase poured out of them like a cloudy poison before the machine died on its own. Be seeing you. This all started about four months ago, when we were looking at apartments together. Amy was so excited, this would be our first apartment together. I can still recall the happiness in her voice when she talked about organizing our bedroom. We finally settled on a newly built apartment building in a new development. The apartment was beautiful, but there wasn't much nearby, just a grocery store, railroad tracks, and a pond. Amy expresses her joy of walking down to the pond and feeding the ducks. We signed our lease and began moving in. We spent the first few nights at our old apartment. My parents were bringing up their truck to move my bed in, but they were out of town for a few days. We finally were able to bring my bed over and Amy and I were officially moved in. I bought a little bottle of champagne to celebrate. It was one of the happiest days of my life. All of that came to a crashing halt when I woke up the next morning. I was a little bleary-eyed and hungover, but I noticed Amy wasn't in bed with me. I looked up to see she was standing in the corner of our room, face turned toward the wall. Amy, what are you doing? I asked. No response. She didn't move. She didn't turn around. Nothing. Amy, what's wrong? I got up and put my hand on her. She was stiff as a board. I tried to pull her away from the wall, but she wouldn't budge. I pulled with all my might, but I couldn't break her away from the corner. It's like she was magnetized to the wall. I started to freak out and called 911. I told them I needed an ambulance and that my girlfriend is unresponsive. While I waited for the ambulance to arrive, I reached out to her parents. Hey, it's me, David. You guys need to get here now. I found Amy standing in a corner and she won't respond. Who is this? Her father asked. It's me, David. Didn't you hear me? Your daughter is in trouble and you need to get here fast. I don't know it, David. And I don't have a daughter either. I think you have the wrong number, pal. He hung up on me. I frantically looked through my phone to see if I called the wrong number. I didn't. I could see all the previous times I had called that number. I even found the text conversation with him about planning Amy's birthday. Her father Phil likes to joke around, but he took it too far this time. I called him back, straight to voicemail. I yelled into the phone. Look, Phil, I don't know what your problem is, but this is no time for jokes. Something is severely wrong with Amy and you need to get here now. As I hung up the phone, there was a knock at my door. It was the police. I opened the door and explained everything. I took them into my room to see if they could get her to move. Son, is this a joke? The officer asked. What do you mean? Please, just see if you can help her. Where is your girlfriend? The officer said. There's no one in that corner. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I became explosive and started to yell. I don't know what's going on here, but you need to help my girlfriend. I need to know if she's okay. The officer told me to calm down or he would detain me. After a quick sobriety check to make sure I wasn't on drugs, he decided to leave. I begged him to stay and help her. He told me to stop wasting the police's time and then left. I ran back over to Amy to see if I could try and move her. She was still standing in the same exact position, hadn't moved in an hour. I bent down to get a look at her face. She had a blank expression. 
I noticed that she was still breathing and blinking. Please, Amy, I begged. Tell me what's happening. I tried to move her again to no avail. That's when I looked up and realized that her plant that she kept on the windowsill was gone. When I looked around the room, I noticed everything that she owned was gone. I ran into her closet. All of her clothes had just disappeared. I frantically ran all over the apartment. Nothing. Everything she owned that we spent days moving into this place have just magically vanished. Even her car was gone. I decided to contact the property office to see if they caught anything that happened to her car on camera. When I explained the situation, they told me that I rented the apartment by myself. What? No, I didn't, I cried. You guys saw Amy and I sign the lease. Can you please just look through the parking lot footage from last night? The guy said he would, but assured me that my signature was the only one on my lease agreement. I went to find my copy, and sure enough, all her signatures and initials had disappeared from the paperwork. I felt like I was going to vomit. My head was spinning with a million questions. I spent the next few hours trying to get Amy to budge from that corner. I eventually gave up and cried myself to sleep. When I woke up the next morning, my situation hadn't changed. She was still standing in that corner. Hasn't changed position since I first saw her. I tried to move her again, but she was like a rock. I noticed she was still blinking and breathing, so I tried to communicate. Amy, if you can hear me, blink twice. Nothing. I decided to ask again. Amy, if you know what is going on, blink twice. Again, nothing happened. She didn't really seem to be blinking in a pattern or anything, just blinking sort of normally. I felt like I was losing my mind. I had no answers to why this was going on. I spent the day trying to contact other friends and family. Everyone had pretty much the same response. They all claimed they didn't know her and had no recollection of who I was. She was an honor student in high school and always made the honor roll. I tried searching the internet for any school records, and nothing. It was like Amy had vanished off the face of the earth. Yet, she was still back at our apartment. I spent the next few days searching the internet trying to find any information on Amy, and I never found any. Weeks started to go by. Every day I would wake up and see Amy still standing in that corner. She never moved a muscle. Every day I would try and move her, and I never could. I became desperate for answers. I started going on religious, paranormal forums. I would ask anybody and everybody if they have ever seen or heard of anything like this. I went to forums on Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Pagan, Paranormal Investigator, even magicians. I asked everyone I could. Nobody had any answers. Nobody had ever experienced or heard about anything like what was happening to me. Eventually, I just gave up. It's been four months since this happened. I've gotten used to it. I try to spend as little time as possible in the bedroom. I really only go in there to sleep or get dressed. I feel so heartbroken, like I've lost Amy. Yet every night, I see her just standing there. Still hasn't moved one bit in four months. Still just blinking. Still just breathing. I could just sleep on the couch, but I like listening to her breathing when I'm trying to sleep. Hearing her breathe is soothing to me. I see her every day, but I feel like I've lost her. 
This apartment is so quiet without her. I miss her voice, her smile. I miss the arguments, and most of all, her bubbly personality. It pains me so much to look at her now, just to see her standing there, not moving. That blank expression every time I look at her face. I can't take this anymore. I was planning on finding another place to live and move on. Then yesterday morning, the unthinkable happened. She moved. I awoke and found that Amy was no longer in the corner. She was standing at the foot of my bed. She had a big smile stretched across her face. Her teeth were showing. She was no longer breathing or blinking. She was staring directly into my eyes. I just sat there in shock. I have no idea how long we were staring at each other. Neither of us moved a muscle. Finally, I cried out. Amy, what's going on? What happened to you? She didn't say anything to me. She started to slowly lift up her head and stretched it towards me. It was as if time stood still. She never broke eye contact. I yelled out. What are you doing, Amy? I haven't spoken to you in so long. Please just tell me what's happening. She finally spoke to me. David, it's time for you to come join me. Take my hand, David. Come with me. I haven't heard her voice in so long I broke down. I jumped out of bed and grabbed her face. Please, Amy, I beg you, just tell me what's happening. What has been going on with you? She never spoke another word after that. She just stood there smiling with her hands stretched out. She never broke eye contact with me. I decided that I can't stay here anymore. I packed and was ready to leave. I had made a reservation for a hotel and I was going to stay with my parents until I could find a new place. As much as it pains me, I needed to move on. Whatever this thing is in my bedroom isn't Amy. As I was packing my bags, I looked over at Amy and she had a tear running down her face. She still hadn't moved much since this morning, still smiling and still sticking her hand out. Amy and I had been through so much together. She was the love of my life. It was like my heart was being ripped out from the thought of leaving her here. I decided to cancel my hotel reservation and spend one last night with her before going to my parents. As I laid in bed, I had this incredibly uneasy feeling. She wasn't breathing this time. Every time I looked up, all I could see was her standing there, still smiling, staring right at me. I didn't sleep well that night. When I woke up, I had received dozens of texts and phone calls. All of them were from unknown numbers. Every text I read was apparently sent by Amy. They were all urging me to come join her. All I have to do is grab her hand. I'm starting to listen to the voicemails. It was Amy's voice. She was crying. David, please. I need you to come with me. Please, I need you to grab my hand. Every single voicemail was the same. I looked back at Amy. She still had her hand out. I miss her so much. I would like nothing more than to see her again. I've already sent goodbye texts to my family and friends. A lot of them are trying to call me right now, but I'm not answering. As I'm writing, I noticed Amy's eyes have started to bleed, and her smile has become a lot more twisted. I hope I'm making the right decision here.
So my wife and I had this big fight, and she's sleeping in a hotel with my toddler tonight. And the house is empty, and I'm a little drunk, and you know, I want to be better than my dad, you know. I want to know if what I did was out of line. Obviously, I don't think I am, but I'm drunk and I'm on my own side here, so am I in the wrong here? I'm an employee of a famous hot dog brand. You know the jingle and the dancing wiener with the wink at the end? That one. With the COVID-19 crisis, work has been really slammed. So many of the guys have been out with the virus or they're having to stay home with their kids or whatever. We've been getting all this OT and that was great for a little bit. But after three months of 12 and 16 hour days, sometimes six days a week, sometimes without a break, it wears you down. I've never been so tired in my life. I was at work and my wife was blowing up my phone. It was our kid's birthday party and she was wearing me out over the hot dogs. I live with them all day at work and she wanted me to get some from the company store for the birthday party. And since I had been too tired, I had forgotten earlier in the week. I'm only human, you know. She's making sure I'm going to get them. I get it. She's nervous and she wants to make sure we can feed all of our guests and their kids and all that. I get it. I, I do. But I was at work. I was exhausted. And she'd been after me about these hot dogs all week. I'd been on shift since 4am and it was near the end. I was on the mixers that day, adding seasonings to the ground up meat mixture and monitoring the water corn syrup mix. The mixers are these really powerful screw kind of looking things that stir a couple hundred pounds of densely packed chicken, cow and pig trimmings. You add water and some corn syrup too, until it's a thick paste. I was adding corn syrup when the alarms blared. Something had set off the quality control shutdown. My mixer wound to a halt, the water shutting off. I was glad, honestly. And we were close to quitting time. I'd been dumping starch and bags of salt and seasonings into a pair of whirring grinding blades all day. I pulled off my PPE and ran a hand through my sweaty hair. It was stupid long. I hadn't been to the barber in forever. The alarm was still pulsing off and on. I looked around for the first time and... Damn. I don't remember. I'd been at work so much I felt like I was a robot. Just a part of the machinery. I don't know why they hadn't automated my part of the process yet. I was looking around for Benji. He was an old fella, almost retirement age. He was one of the few other people who needed the money or didn't have anyone to worry about or whatever. So he was still at work, despite all the corona crap. I didn't see him at his station. He probably went to go see what was going on with the QC alarm, too. I walked through the plant, following the pipes and alarm sound, until I got to the other side of the emulsifier. The mix looked off. That I could tell right away. It smelled a little weird, too. Fresher, almost. The mix, usually a pale, silly putty peach color, was warmer redder. I saw my supervisor on the line, standing next to the machine that filled the skins with the emulsified mixture. His name was Jay. What's up? I asked. You seen this crap? He said, waving his hand at the mix. Yeah, it looks weird, I said. He looked at me like I was crazy or sick or something. It looks like long pork hot dogs is what it looks like. You seen Benji? Something about Jay's tone got me on edge. Why? What's up? Jay shook his head. 
He fell into this damn mixer is what? You're looking at people dog mix. My stomach turned over, but some wild asshole part of my brain was so glad that it happened. It meant a shutdown, at least a week, maybe longer. Damn, they might close the plant because of this crisis and furlough me. And then I was overwhelmed with exhaustion and a kind of vague guilt. I didn't really know Benji. I felt bad that I hadn't spoken to him much. And was him falling in my fault? I didn't look up from my mixer. I never checked on him. But hell, we never did that. That's someone else's job. Damn it. Yeah. Damn it. Do you... Did he... I don't know. Did he fall asleep? Jay looked at me again. I should be asking you that. Go home. You're done for the day. Hell, we all are, said Jay. His work radio crackled and he answered. I didn't hear what the other person on the radio said. Go home. Damn, the hot dogs. The oven where the hot dogs are smoked and moved down the line to packaging paralleled the route I took to get out of the building. It was hard not to look at the dangling meats and wonder which part had Benji's teeth, which part was his tongue. Could you open one up and find a finger from his glove? My phone buzzed in my pocket. I looked. Did you get the hot dogs? I lost it. It was too much. I had been working here forever, and a co-worker just got chewed up and turned into damn frankfurters. I got down to packaging. A friend of mine, Zach, was working in packaging. He was cutting dogs off the hangers and throwing them into a garbage can marked with a biohazard sign. You gotta clean the whole line off? Yeah, said Zach. That sucks, but double time. I guess it's worth it. I looked at the packaged hot dogs. You know, if these are any good. Zach looked at me from the side while he got the dogs down. You serious? They're just going to toss it all out, even if they don't have anything wrong with them, I said. I need a case for a party. Zach kept his eyes on the dangling hot dogs. Do whatever, man. It's all just crap this year anyway. I walked to the end of the line and got a case worth of packaged hot dogs. They didn't look like they had that off color the dogs up the line had. I was ready to go home. I cooked them up and they didn't smell off. They didn't taste any different. My heart was in my throat the whole cookout, but no one screamed and pulled a fingernail out of their hot dog or anything. It was probably fine, right? My wife found out when my friend's wife called over to talk about furlough and meal planning. So that's when she started screaming at me like a crazy person and took our kid and left. There's the story. I think she overreacted. <laughs>